Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Dr. Chris Walling. Chris has been an active leader in healthcare for nearly two decades. His work integrates the developmental, biological, and somatic aspects of the lifespan. His work in academic medicine has included the administration of multidisciplinary leadership teams in hematology oncology, physical medicine and rehabilitation, and geriatric psychiatry. He is a clinical research fellow in the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium at the Kinsey Institute, located at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Dr. Walling is the current president of the United States Association of Body Psychotherapy, the hub of somatic psychology. His clinical focus in the behavioral sciences has examined the intersections of neuropsychotherapy, affect regulation, and somatic psychotherapy. Dr. Walling is the former executive administrator for the UCLA Longevity Center and Division of Geriatric Psychiatry. He currently serves as the vice president of education at the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, where cutting edge research is conducted in geriatric integrative medicine. Dr. Walling is also a member of the Somatic Experiencing Research Committee at the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Dr. Walling is a clinical associate at the New Center for Psychoanalysis and a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in Los Angeles. So hello, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello. It's good to be with you. So um, before we get into, dive into a conversation around um, the really interesting work that you do in body psychotherapy and somatic psychotherapy, I wanted to just ask a little bit about your own story and what has led you to um, this therapeutic work that you've um, become so focused on. Sure. So um, I'm originally from Kentucky, um, as is most of the generations back as far as we can tell. Um, I grew up to in a very young family to two teenage parents who were working class people um, in, in central Kentucky. And so throughout my youth, um, I often had a very curious mind and quite the open heart, as is perhaps quite customary of people from the South. Hmm. And as a consequence, as my um, life kind of unfolded, the, I am the product really of great public education. It was ninth grade science teachers who really had me thinking. Um, I still remember to this day, Miss Peggy Welch, who was <laughs> teaching me you know, about the Krebs cycle. Um, and that really got me interested in sort of this um, possibilities orientation of where um, the, the academy might take me. And so much of my career has been spent within academic universities, as, as you were alluding to in my bio. Um, but I've also kept one foot firmly planted, I think, in um, in ethnography and in the exploration of culture and people um, and that sense of community from my own background, I think, is really what has always um, really led to me wanting to think reflexively and to think in terms of lineage. It's what's led me to the yoga world and to the somatic space. Mm. So what um, particularly drew you to the, your interest in somatic psychotherapy specifically? Yeah. So it, it, yoga came first for me. Um, and, and in part because I think, you know, really yoga is a somatic psychology. It's one of the first. And I'm not alone in, in that 
supposition. You know, the the eight limbs of yoga that was taught to me, you know, years ago in, in yoga classes really had me thinking about the mind-body connection um, pretty early on, I would say as far back as even my early 20s. And what it did is that it invited this consideration that, oh, there might be underlining um, processes that help actually leverage and advance the health promoting benefits of these practices. So um, being the curious George that I am, I kind of went all over the place seeking more systems of knowledge and seeking uh, additional practices, whether it was Alexander technique or whether it was uh, voice and movement classes at various arts institutes. Um, I was forever looking to push the boundaries of what were the healing properties and the growth potentials that one could yield from, um, from embodied practice. Mm. So in somatics, my first um, entree to somatics was actually my first teacher was Peter Levine um, in the somatic experiencing space um, where I took a one-off workshop with him, I think, um, and the rest was history. Mm. Mm. So one of the um, things that you point out in an article I read of yours is that, you know, the body psychotherapy, somatic experiencing, all of these kind of this, this new paradigm of focusing on our embodiment is um, focusing or shifting from a kind of talking model to a feeling model. And I've talked about this with a lot of people on the podcast before, um, but I wanted to get a little bit, um, to ask you a little bit about that and, and why that's specifically so important from a therapeutic perspective. Well, it has a lot to do um, with, I think, the healing potential really of empathy and the fact that as social mammals, mm -hmm. um, much of what promotes a greater stabilization of safety in our physiology is through a, a relationship. I mean, if you look at the common factors research within the field, let's say, of clinical psychology or psychotherapy, the one thing that you will find in the common factors research is that ultimately, regardless of the therapeutic modality that a clinician may use, it is the therapeutic alliance, as we call it, that determines treatment outcome. Well, on a practical scale, what does that mean? It means the ability to actually have a human-to-human -human connection that is fundamentally emotionally informed. Hmm. And there was, of course, this boon of evidence-based practice that happened from the cognitive um, sort of wave that really created and influenced a lot of academic thinking in terms of what is the best practice for clinicians that really created a much more top-down model that came into popularity over the last couple of decades. In so doing, it kind of eschewed and avoided sort of the pitfalls of the underdeveloped body of knowledge within humanistic psychotherapies, which had had a strong influence on a psychotherapist's understanding of the role of the body in psychotherapy. Yeah. So with advances in neuroimaging and advances in uh, affect neuro, affective neuroscience, we've been able to kind of put old wine in new bottles. We've been able to sort of understand that really what's at play in that therapeutic alliance is a much more felt sense, which is a term that's coined from a somatic psychologist by the name of Eugene Gindlin, who created focusing psychotherapy. That felt sense is this kind of ability to sense into the affective embodied body-to-body -body experience that is fundamentally the arc that unfolds the treatment. 
Mm. Mm. So um, in the context of, you know, an experience of trauma, how would a, like even maybe perhaps what's kind of the science behind, I know you've been working a lot with Stephen Porges, and so he's kind of offered this model as to why the kind of feeling sort of modalities actually um, have a beneficial effect. Can you talk a little bit about why the feeling um, approach would actually help resolve trauma or could perhaps help resolve trauma in a way that a, a merely talking model would perhaps not? Sure. So polyvagal informed therapies by their nature borrow from the study of the evolution of the vertebrate autonomic nervous system. And it assumes that many of our social behaviors and vulnerabilities are actually hardwired into our nervous system. Mm -hmm. The theory demonstrates all sorts of aspects of mental health and has helped to develop treatment techniques like somatic experiencing and many others that aid mental health professionals in renegotiating the hierarchical manner that parallels in reverse the phylogenetic history of our nervous system in vertebrates. So central to the practice of embodied psychotherapies or in most sort of embodied traditions that seek to target trauma is the titration of various psychomotor phenomena and sensory inputs that in order to integrate such experiences into our conscious awareness of, let's say, a survivor of trauma, that they often will achieve that through a deactivation of the latent autonomic distress within the body, within the nervous system itself. So being able to sense into and pick up on cues of safety that promote health growth and restoration are the key to sort of understanding how to work with trauma, understanding that it's mostly implicit and procedural memories that are below the level of our conscious awareness that require renegotiation in service to resilience and post-traumatic growth. Hmm. Amazing. You're so clear on all of these things. I love it. <laughs> so uh, um, uh, when we were talking before the interview about, um, about kind of the therapeutic context of, of these models, and, and I guess, you know, just to kind of go into that therapy room, as it were, um, what does um, a, a feeling-based approach look like in the context of a therapeutic session. So for example, you know, we, I think we're all familiar with the, the model, you know, the Freudian model of lying on the couch talking about your feelings. Um, but what kind of things happen or could potentially happen in that space when a therapist is, is, is um, uh, coming from that feeling approach? Sure. Well, you know, it, it may or may not, depending upon the clinician and their particular style, look terribly different from early free associative processes with one exception. And that is that there will be less focus upon the narrative. And it's much more um, sort of designed to help invite a kind of exploratory orienting. And as a result, really is a dyadic sort of embodied relational form of mindfulness when you're approaching it from what you're positing in, in others that, that I've even written about as this feeling-based approach or an affective focused approach. And that capacity to really leverage um, orientation or exteroception is really at the heart of many of the preparatory orienting responses that our bodies are capable of doing that helps us integrate lived experience, how we learn through psychomotor learning. So 
basic to all modal life is a differential approach avoid response to perceived features of our environment. And the various stages of response are initially reflexive noticing and orienting to stimulus and preparation and the execution of a given response. I mean, that's classic behaviorism, right? So preparation involves a coordination of many aspects of the organism, muscle tone, posture, breathing, autonomic functions, and emotional state, attentional orientation. So in a session, one might actually simply be stabilizing the capacity to explore the environment. Mm. A common uh, sort of trope in, in somatic psychotherapies is this kind of interventional question of like, and what are you noticing next? Mm. Which is about exploratory orienting. Yeah. And it's about this sort of exploration of where one might notice uh, associative processes in which that the environment itself is innately threatening or not, that then invite a kind of relational way of reorienting and exploring. Beautiful. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, this is specifically the strategies around somatic experiencing. Um, and so uh, what are these three core strategies of somatic experiencing? You talk a little bit about them in the article, resourcing titration or titration. Am I mispronouncing that? Titration. <laughs> titration, okay. <laughs> and pendulation. Um, so can we talk a little bit about this and how this relates to you know what we're talking about within the therapeutic context? Sure. So, um, you know, within particular SE practice, within my scope of practice, because you have to remember that there are a number of multidisciplinary clinicians who are trained in somatic experiencing. Somatic experiencing by itself is simply a set of principles that can be applied to a number of therapies, plural, mm -hmm. whether it be physical therapy, occupational therapy. And so within my scope of practice as a clinical psychologist, there really are uh, three primary um, sort of core strategies that, that I may employ. Resourcing is not new. Um, it helps a person sort of experience trauma and or in, in traumatic memory um, and its effects through a kind of containment where resources for feeling safe and secure are employed simultaneously to help resolve any of the remaining kind of activation that the body may still hold around revisiting certain memories. So this might include um, the elicitation of a conversation around memories when you had a good time with loved ones, uh, thinking about, um, you know, a particular place or space that you enjoy going to of what's it like to enjoy a nice summer afternoon in Cape Cod. Um, so one goal of therapy really is to help people discover and build a supply of both internal and external resources of support. So resourcing is one cornerstone. Titration really is the, the most significant, in my opinion, contribution that Peter Levine will go down in history for contributing to trauma theory, which is exposing, you know, all, all standard practices of trauma therapy, regardless of clinical orientation, the gold standard is what we might call uh, exposure therapy or graduated exposure therapy. So titration is this principle that we expose one to small amounts of traumatic related distress over a period of time in treatment. 
in order to build up their affective tolerance, to avoid becoming overwhelmed. So in therapy, people will pay close attention to sensory experience as it emerges, while also simultaneously perhaps revisiting whatever activation or distress is coming up while they're speaking. And that becomes over time through the graduated exposure less and less uh, impactful in terms of distress. And finally, the pendulation aspect, which has sometimes been called looping or um, it's embedded in just sort of the nature of how we, we rock in order to soothe, it involves switching between resourcing and titration at times and allowing someone to really move between states of distress and arousal triggered by traumatic sequelae versus a state of ease, safety, and calm. And that helps us to sort of regain dynamic homeostasis, uh, which allows us to be sort of both calm and alert. Hmm. So as you're speaking, I'm, 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 this is making me think about, um, you know, the trauma-informed therapies that have been, or trauma-informed approaches that have been kind of popping up all over the place. And, you know, I don't, um, I haven't taken any of these trainings myself, but when I have conversations around it, sometimes um, at least maybe a superficial expression of them is this idea of kind of, you know, avoiding, you know, exposing anyone to any trauma. There's this preciousness around trauma, right? And when you're talking about titration as a sort of like a, you know, obviously within the context of a controlled environment with a, with a therapist, there's this, you know, um, introduction of um, small degrees of, of, of traumatic experience or however you would express it. Um, but do you, from that perspective, uh, from what you've just talked about, are there is issues that you see with with some of these trauma-informed approaches, or are they or are they essentially aligned with with the ideas that you're unpacking here? Well, you know, like all um, tribes, they don't all agree, and, right. and so as a result, there's going to be various differences of opinion in terms of clinical style. Even my summary of SE theory. Uh, within the SE community, there's going to be differences of opinion about how right. incredibly reductive I just made it. Um, so, so I mean, the answer, I guess, to your question is, is it depends, um, right. which is the most intellectually unsatisfying answer that one can give. But, <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, there's so much variability in mm -hmm. terms of clinical practice because, you know, I often say to my patients, look, the, the therapist is the therapy. And, and so the relationship is the healing factor. And the uniqueness of the particular therapist that you may work with is going to really determine the preciousness, as you call it, that um, the trauma may, may or may not present within the treatment plan. Um, I think trauma theory has really brought our attention to a lot of the major factors of what promotes health and growth and restoration. And that that on sort of a, a leading edge boundary of practice is where I see things now going. We are much more interested now in post-traumatic growth than we've ever been interested in post-traumatic stress. Hmm. Wow. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the research that you're doing. Um, I do wanna get into yoga therapy research, which is actually the title of a course that you'll be doing with Embodied Philosophy. I'll just plug it right now, although sure. we'll talk a little bit about it later uh, at the end of the podcast, but just to plant a little seed for those that are listening. Um, uh, Chris will be doing a course on, on yoga therapy research for Embodied Philosophy coming up here in end of September. 
Um, so I, I guess my question is, well, first of all, just uh, I wanted to uh, open it up to you talking a little bit about the research that you doing, you're doing, because I know you're very excited about it. And then um, mm -hmm. I'm also quite, uh, when I was reading your bio, um, I would love to hear a little bit about the research around Alzheimer's, um, sure. um, perhaps because my grandma died of Alzheimer's. And mm -hmm. so I have this kind of, you know, personal desire to just know what the, how this work is informing our understanding right. of that. So um, let's start then with, with the TSRC. So at the Kinsey Institute Traumatic Stress Research Consortium, um, we, under the leadership of Dr. Stephen Porges, um, are a broad spectrum of clinician researchers and uh, basic researchers who really have come together to help further the understanding of the experiences of survivors of trauma. So although trauma affects all of our lives, we as a, as a society often don't listen to the voices of survivors. Instead, we react and judge based on mistaken beliefs that traumatic events have only a transitory influence on mental and physical health. But we demonstrate this lack of understanding through media, through the judicial system, through uh, even contemporary medical practice, how we organize hospitals, how we organize our school systems, the way our workplaces are designed. Um, in other words, everything is under-informed by trauma theory as we've come to see it. And many of our institutions that form our society are not trauma-informed. Mm. So where are the resources to inform society of this profound physical mental impact that trauma has? Where's the information on the consequences of traumatic stress on survivors' social behaviors, on their relationships, on the personal intimacy and sexuality of the survivor? Where does a survivor of trauma find the roadmap describing their symptoms and possible treatments in a timeline that might help inform their own treatment? Yeah. So that's really what created um, the TSRC. Its mission is to fill these important gaps in our understanding of the experience of survivorship based on a new paradigm for the study of trauma, which is polyvagal informed. And in that paradigm, we will witness the survivors' stories through various methodologies, through technologies. These approaches will start with, uh, over the last year, a number of survey-related studies that uh, we've begun to look at COVID-19 in our body-mind stress survey, to look at LGBT mental health uh, amidst COVID-19, and then also to look at the contemporary experiences of trauma therapists uh, throughout the world in our international surveys. So that's a, a, a bit about um, the TSRC and as you can see why it's so um, relevant to kind of where we all are right now. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the Alzheimer's work that you're doing. I would love to just um, know a little bit about what, how the kind of somatic approach is helping us understand Alzheimer's in a different way than perhaps it is understood kind of, uh, you know, along the lines of the orthodoxy. <laughs> Sure. So the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation was founded in 1993 um, by Dr. Dharma Singh Khalsa, who um, wrote uh, the book, the, the famous book, Meditation as Medicine. Mm. And it was dedicated to preventing AD by funding research studies that provided educational outreach, memory screenings, uh, and doing things of that, of that nature to help um, promote a prevention-based approach. Because as of today, we still have absolutely no drug 
um, that has been developed that can really be of longitudinal service to fighting the disease or preventing it. Yeah. So ARPF's philosophy in research is that all is that memory loss is neither normal nor natural as a part of aging. That there are aspects of our lifestyles that help us maximize brain power, reduce the risk of developing AD. And so our approach is using the best of conventional medicine combined with the best of integrative medical modalities. So diet and brain-specific nutrients, stress management through yoga and meditation, physical and mental exercise, and ultimately what we call spiritual fitness, which is akin to what in the literature we might call psychological well-being or psycho-spiritual well-being. So it's within those four pillars, as we call it, that we uh, help advance the knowledge base in terms of what are the major health promoting factors of those four pillars? How do they inform um, the staggering statistics around the fact that AD affects nearly 5.4 million Americans and many more millions worldwide? And so we really are interested in helping create accessible uh, community-based educate, public education and public health prevention programs and that's essentially what we're dedicated to helping create in the world. Mm. So I take it you would say that a future kind of contemplative culture or a culture kind of uh, built around contemplative principles would have less Alzheimer's present. The data already shows that. The mm. data already says that in various parts of the world where those four pillars are a routine part of the ethos and the culture have less incidence of uh, mild cognitive impairment, which is the first diagnosis that one may receive uh, along that journey. So um, it's absolutely the case according to the evidence that we've seen so far. Amazing. So now a little bit about yoga therapy. I know you do a lot of work um, you know, within yoga therapy trainings and obviously you're gonna teach this course on embodied philosophy about yoga therapy research. Um, I, you know, having spoken about obviously body psychotherapy and the kind mm -hmm. of somatic psychotherapeutic approach that you take, I'm wondering just if these two paradigms of yoga therapy and then somatic psychotherapy are they are they completely compatible? I'm I'm speaking to, of course, the more traditional understanding of yoga therapy that perhaps emerged from deep, um, um, uh, Desikachar mm -hmm. and that sort of lineage stream. Are these are these two kind of perspectives completely compatible from your uh, from your perspective, or is there has there had to be a little bit of of zhuzhing mm -hmm. to make them fit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I would say um, that Western commercialism has absolutely zhuzhed um, a great deal about the yoga lineages and in some ways reappropriated it um, much to the chagrin of conventional practitioners. Yeah. So I, I do not believe that they are always compatible. And yeah. I think that's why particularly as um, health you know, promotion practitioners and or clinicians, that there is an, a profound responsibility of being deferential and respectful um, of sort of the different orientation that one might approach uh, healing through when you are a classically trained yogi. Yeah. So that brings to bear, of course, conversations around how Western universities in particular have approached the legitimacy of uh, indigenous uh, knowledge and the role of indigenous peoples in the advancing of um, decolonizing interpretive research. But you know, over the course of the last 30 years in the West, 
yoga has, of course, because of its commercial popularity, been heralded for its therapeutic and healing properties. Mm -hmm. And it's evolved into very specific applications of yogic tools like postures, breathwork, meditation, etc., to address all kinds of individual, physical, mental, emotional needs. And today there are thousands of providers who actually identify as yoga therapists who in some instances, if they are certified through the International Association of Yoga Therapists, have demonstrated competencies, have gone through thousands in some instances of hours of training. Um, and there are about 200 schools now that train these folks in comprehensive clinical yoga therapy uh, in the United States and beyond. So the incorporation of integrative healthcare into modern medicine is ever the more dependent now upon a shared understanding of how these ancient traditions may actually help advance clinical outcomes of a number of health challenges, which creates an urgent need to help advance the findings of a more evidence-informed, peer-reviewed practice of clinical yoga therapy, if it is to serve within the continuum of care. And that endeavor is, of course, creating a need for research literacy within yoga practitioners, within the yoga community. And I think that's why we're creating this course together is to help advance that very need. Hmm. Yeah, you spoke about um, before the we started the interview of your desire in this course to um, encourage or invite lay researchers. That's how you described it. What what do you mean by lay researchers? And and can you talk a little bit more about what the benefit is of kind of you know improving uh, contemporary yogis' research skills? Sure. So <clears throat> medicine is still a practice. We call it a practice. And I think we sometimes forget that, just like yoga is a practice. And as a consequence, it's about collaboration, information sharing, um, open access sourcing to information. Um, shout out to all the open access journals in the world. Um, so ultimately, what we really need, if this is to continue to grow and evolve, is for practitioners who identify as yoga therapists and who are incorporating it within their scope of practice, uh, within the ethics of, of their scope of practice, to actually begin to think about how they are uh, tracking, capturing, um, and reporting upon the case histories of the various patients or clients that they're working with. So what I have in mind um, in my fantasy of a more research rich um, and lay researcher informed approach is that uh, practitioners would actually begin to write about and submit for peer review some of their own case histories, who would begin to survey uh, the current and emerging body of knowledge to create a more uh, clinically informed approach to how they're adapting these practices and exploring the risks as well as the benefits so that they hold both in their awareness. And so that's really at the heart of what I meant by lay researcher. Now, as far as research literacy, um, there is a multidisciplinary application of yoga therapy going on right now in the world. And that means that both, you know, buyer beware as well as clinician do your homework. And so we have to be able to compare and contrast popular research methods that are employed all throughout uh, evidence-based practice throughout all healing modalities to evaluate the epistemic responsibilities of yoga therapy practitioners who will often need to include often subjugated types of knowledge into their research focus. So 
I really hope to help redistribute the epistemic power uh, to the agents that typically have been excluded from epistemic participation in contemporary research, uh, while also holding the kind of vigor that peer review uh, and, and clinical practice would offer us in terms of our methodology. Is a part of research literacy, as, as you're talking, this just kind of came up for me, is a part of research literacy um, developing the discernment that will allow us to, um, to kind of be able to discern between like essentially like bogus research, but the, the stuff that gets disseminated in the media, like you see it all the time. It's like this latest study is, you know, saying that this will cure this. And it has, there's been no peer review. It was just one right. study that happened that, and this is happening all the time, right? And, and people see it and they think, oh, it's science. It must be true, you know? <laughs> right. And it's almost, and I feel like it does, I often analogize it to the way that popular astrology actually does a disservice to it. And um, the more grounded understanding of astrology, because there are, you know, grounded kind of mm -hmm. technologies that um, we could look at with regards to that. And it seems like, you know, that what is happening is that people um, are kind of consuming this popular um, research that just is sort of flashy and fresh, but really is not grounded in any kind of scientific peer reviewed process. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a it's about, you know, the. We, we've done a great job, I think, in terms of theorizing how East meets West in, in terms of how we can really integrate uh, within uh, our continuum of care these various practices. But what we still have a lot of homework around is to ensure that there are adequate protections for consumers. And to that end, that requires that we inform the very people who are doing the research on what is good and bad research. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that a pilot study is bad. Um, pilot studies are where things begin, yeah. but we shouldn't actually be employing interventions within clinical care uh, across various domains of health um, that aren't actually subjected to randomized controlled trials, even though some may disagree as that at the RCT as being the gold standard, but right now it's the best we've got. Mm -hmm. So. We, we have to employ um, what we know with what we don't know and hold both and not collapse one for the sake of the other. Yeah. Okay, so let's end on a provocative note. Okay. <laughs> which is this topic of decolonizing research, um, which is a mm. really interesting um, idea that I haven't talked to anyone about before. So can you talk uh, a little bit about what you mean by decolonizing research and, and why this is so important? Yeah, so... Original theoretical contributions um, of any field require uh, a profound uh, intellectual challenge. To advance science means that there's a lot of responsibility on someone to sort of lay their claim. So if you know uh, a particular area of knowledge um, inside and out, and you're intimately familiar with the issues and the controversies within your field, you have a chance to contribute to new theoretical developments. That's sort of the, um, the pathway of the researcher in the modern world. And if you choose to pursue a particular theoretical approach, you are often expected to, to argue against your peers um, for whatever viewpoint that you're offering as a different way of understanding um, a, of this particular phenomenon, let's say, right? 
And some of the more valuable theoretical contributions that we have seen actually combine disciplines. They're kind of polymath theories that borrow from um, many different sorts of ways of, of thinking. In fact, somatic experiencing is heavily influenced by ethology. So the concerns about a decolonizing approach um, are, of course, historically often been presented as though it's somehow less rigorous. But qualitative researchers have had to go up against those critiques uh, since there has ever been uh, contemporary research because of its political and, and cultural subjectivity. And what really um, decolonizing interpretive research does is that it helps invite a consideration that there is often uh, voices for whom we have not really incorporated into our thinking, that there are ways of knowing things that aren't necessarily materialistic or concretized in, in a kind of uh, philosophical materialism, and also that we have to re-examine some of the hypothetical or scientific assumptions that we have generated in previous findings when we're surveying the literature, and that we're not just proof texting our literature reviews for echo chambers of our own beliefs, but are actually doing the good job of a good scientist of looking for ways in which that we can prove ourselves wrong, which is at the heart of the scientific method. So ultimately, that means decolonizing a lot of the ways in which that research has been constructed within the West itself, learning to yield and to be respectful to other ways of knowing and including that within your systemic reviews of knowledge, as well as including that in your methodological designs of your studies. That is at the heart of a decolonizing approach, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things that seems so challenging about that is that it really does, I mean, when you, when you get to the foundation of your own epistemology, sometimes it's so assumed. I mean, you, the, you assume the validity of it because it is what is the very bedrock of what you take to be real. And so this is why I've always, you know, I, I think that philosophy is so important because it, it permits you the ability to actually, you know, see the fundamental assumptions of your own epistemology such that you can then even begin to open yourself to other epistemologies because otherwise you're just going to assume, well, that's all BS because like I, I know that I know that I know. <laughs> that's right. You know? That's right. I, I think that's the real uh, developmental milestone of the capacity to think intersubjectively, mm -hmm. to think beyond our own subjectivity, to hold certain polarities and paradoxes within our thinking uh, without pushing them away. And it, re and it does require a certain amount of developmental achievement to be able to do that, I think, in our thinking. Mm. Amazing. So where in, uh, do you, are there any like examples of where this is, this work is being done of decolonizing research fairly well? Yeah. Um, I, I, I would really invite people to check out uh, Antonia Darter's book on decolonizing interpretive research, a, a subalter methodology for social change, um, particularly because much of her work, um, which I think is based out of Loyola Marymount, University um, has influenced my own thinking in terms of how I look at study design. And really, uh, she holds the an endowed chair position in ethics and moral leadership that is, I think, in my opinion, kind of showing a, a way shower approach to how we might actually audaciously bring to the fore a more subaltern voice um, that not only helps interrogate so-called objective 
uh, lenses, but uses uh, that uses itself to research the other and propagate this idea of othering further in the world, but also uh, to create a more emancipatory and humanistic and organic body of knowledge in the world. Beautiful. So as we close, Chris, it's been a wonderful conversation. I feel like we packed a lot in. Um, I wanted to, <laughs> no stone left unturned, as it were. Mm. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about the course you're going to be sh doing on embodied philosophy and, um, you know, share with this, with the people listening, uh, you know, why they might jump on board? Absolutely. So, um, so much of what we've talked about already in the podcast today are really embedded in much of the readings and the lectures and the didactics and the discussions that we will cover, um, across, uh, I believe a total of four modules. Um, so it will be a month of exploratory orienting to a multidisciplinary range of the body of, of knowledge and research that exists within um, both academic and non-academic literature sources. So uh, we'll talk about randomized controlled trials of yogic meditation. We're going to talk about um, how we look at some basic research, calibrating the, uh, the HPA axis and how we can use a multi-sensory intervention that involves a series of postures, movements, breath regulation, and deep relaxation called yoga uh, to help um, advance the efficacy of many of the theories that inform clinical practice today. So uh, I invite people to come to Embodied Philosophy and check out the course and to sign up this month. We start at the end of the month and uh, I'm very excited. Me too. It's going to be a great course. Um, so if you're interested in that, just head to embodiedphilosophy.com. You'll find um, embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash learn, and you'll see a link to the course there. Um, Chris, this has been such a pleasure. Do you want to share where uh, um, uh, the listeners can find you, your your website? It's Is it Chris Walling or is it Dr. Chris Walling? It's actually just somapsychology.com as my private practice in LA. And then um, if they want to know more about this vast world of body psychotherapy, just to go to usabp.org, which is the US Association for Body Psychotherapy. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's been such a pleasure. Likewise. All right, let me turn this off here.